Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2021, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. afternoon listeners this is the dogs program the australian council for the defense of government schools and we're here every saturday at 12 noon on 3cr no one else would have us and we're very happy to be here uh, and we are here to promote and to defend public education now we've got a, a, a very interesting and slightly unusual program for you this afternoon during the week I don't know how many of you read the Australian Financial Review, but I was reading the Australian Financial Review and I came across this extraordinary article by one Prue Goward. And it was about why you shouldn't underestimate the underclass. And I couldn't quite believe what I was reading, that it was possible in this country, which does have class divides, for anyone to be so outspoken really about the so-called underclass. It was almost as if I was back in 19th century England and could be 20 or 21st century England in some respects too, but not Australia. And I started wondering about it. But I wasn't the only person who reacted. Large numbers of people reacted. The uh, social media went quite feral on it, or viral I think is the word, And a couple of days later, another lady called Cassandra Goldie responded, but there were a lot of other responses too. Then I came to think about about these two women and where they went to school. And the first lady, Prue, well, she went to a public school when she was in primary school. That's where she actually met some of the underclass who she claims she quite likes. And then she got a half a scholarship to a private school in Adelaide. And you might have heard of her. She's had a meteoric career through the Liberal Party and she even holds now an academic position at the uh, University in Western Sydney. And Cassandra Goldie, who responded to her, went to a Perth high school and has had also a meteoric career as a community lawyer and human rights writer. And she also as an academic position at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. So I thought that we would contemplate this and their attitudes and what their school must have taught them such that they have ended up where they are. So our press release 9-11 is about two ladies, Prue Goward and Cassandra Goldie. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jane. 
In the past week, the mainstream and social media has lit up in reaction to two articles published by two prominent Australian women. One is Prue Goward. According to Wikipedia, Prudence Jane Goward, born on the 2nd of September 1952, an Australian politician, was a Liberal member of the New South Wales Legislative Assembly from 2007 to 2019, representing the seat of Goulburn. She was the New South Wales Minister for Family and Community Services and Minister for Social Housing from January 2017 to March 2019 in the Berejiklian government and the Minister for Prevention of Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault from 2015 until March 2019. Goward has also previously served as the Minister for Mental Health, Minister for Medical Research and Assistant Minister for Health. Assistant Minister for Health between April 2015 and January 2017, and the Minister for Women between 2011 and January 2017 in the second Baird government, and the Minister for Planning during 2014 and 2015. With the first Berejiklian government, she returned to community services portfolio, which she previously held between 2011 and 2014 in the O'Farrell and First Baird governments. Prior to entering politics, Goward served as the Australian Federal Sex Discrimination Commissioner and Commissioner Responsible for Age Discrimination with the Australian Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission. In 2019, Goward became an academic with Western Sydney University. Goward was born to Gerald Goward and Zipporah Riggs and was raised in Adelaide she attended Morfitt Vale Primary School, Willunga High School, and gained entrance to Woodlands Church of England Girls Grammar School on a half scholarship. She graduated with a Bachelor of Arts with economy in Economics and Honours in 1974 from Adelaide University. She was married from 1973 to 1983 to university lecturer Alastair Fisher, whom she met while studying at Adelaide University. Goward married journalist David Barnett in 1986. Goward and Barnett have maintained a close personal friendship with former Prime Minister John Howard for many years and jointly wrote a biography of Howard in 1997. The dogs note that Prue Goward was a half-scholarship girl at Woodlands Church of England Grammar School in Adelaide. Her career indicates a determination to identify with and relate to the self-styled governing elites of Australia. She has, at best, a patronizing attitude towards the less fortunate in society. The second prominent woman is Cassandra Goldie, who Sorrel will now tell you a bit about. Thanks, Ollie. So the second prominent woman is Cassandra Goldie, who is currently the head of the Australian Council of Social Services. According to lawyers group Pro Bono Australia, Cassandra believes that through the law, we can make the world a better place. This is not, for her, a matter of high theory and ideology. Rather, she emphasises it's about a practical approach, which remains a consistent theme through all my work, says Cassandra. Cassandra formed this view as a young woman, which is why she headed from her high school in Perth to study law at the University of Western Australia. But, like many young people, I soon learned that the legal profession directs most of its efforts towards people who can pay. Many people who need justice just can't afford it. So, not for her a lucrative career as a partner in a, law, in a corporate law firm. Where did she head after graduating? It helps to think in five-year blocks, she says. For the first five-year block, 
She travelled overseas, completed further studies in the UK, which is where she became involved in human rights. Rejecting the possibility of a life of academia, she returned to Australia and joined the Legal Aid Western Australia, ending up as a solicitor in charge of client services, cutting her teeth, working with people who could not afford private lawyers. It was then off to the tropical heat of Darwin and out of the strictures of a large semi-government body. For this five-year stint, she was principal solicitor of the Darwin Community Legal Centre. Small, financially strapped, but working even closer with those most in need of access to legal services. Then, and yes, for a further five years, she studied her PhD. It's Dr. Cassandra Goldie, LLB, Master's, PhD, to give her her full and proper title. Congratulations on finishing Many Don't, I offer, the person who was interviewing her. Um, I do remember sitting beside the pool in Darwin reading a booklet on how to get your PhD done, PhD done quickly, says Cassandra. No doubt Cassandra would have completed her doctorate more quickly if she had not also set up the Homelessness Legal Rights Project at UNSW, a clearinghouse on legal and human rights for homeless people and a core part of the hub of newly emerging homeless people legal clinics. And if she had not also worked internationally as the Asia Pacific consultant for the Center of Housing Rights and Evictions. As is usually the case, the subject of the doctorate tells us much about the author. Cassandra's title, Living in Public Spaces, a Human Rights Wasteland. It focuses on the legal status and the needs of one of the most disadvantaged groups in Australia, people who live in the long grass around Darwin, those who are regularly moved on and criminalised. Using human rights law, Cassandra mounts a critique and a direct challenge to the Darwin City Council's bylaw that bans sleeping in public places between sunset and sunrise. The themes of law, human rights, social justice and a practical approach shine through. Next. The now Dr Goldie then joined the Australian Human Rights Commission, formerly known as the Human Rights and Equal Opportunities Commission, as the Director of Sex and Age Discrimination. It was a period of significant achievement. After a listening tour in 2007, the Commission paid, put paid paternal leave firmly on its agenda. Extraordinarily, come 2010, both Labor and the Coalition with the support of the Greens, took major policies on this issue into the last election, with the coalition outbidding Labor with a more generous scheme funded by a new tax on big business. Cassandra is quick to point out that this achievement resulted from a broad-based campaign that attracted support from many sectors. Yes, and the ball has to be formed and then rolled up the hill. And the commission was instrumental in this process. Another big achievement was the reform of the Sex Discrimination Act, which had not been looked at for a quarter of a century. The Commission's research on equal employment opportunity legislation showed that Australia had actually been going backwards over the last decade in terms of representation of women at senior and executive board levels. That's why, from January 1st, 2011, public companies will be required to report every year on the representation of women on their boards and in senior management. And if over the next five years their performance does not improve, then they will face the prospect of legislation. Well done, the Commission. Well done, Cassandra. Cassandra was appointed as the new CEO of the Australian Council of Social Services, commencing a week into the election, replacing Claire Martin, who has returned to Darwin. 
She is not new to the Council of Social Services world. In Darwin, she soon joined the Northern Territory Council of Social Services board and was soon elected its president. And through that, was soon a member of the Australian Council of Social Services board. She was also the Australian Council of Social Services Law and Justice Policy Advisor for several years. In her new role, Cassandra seems to have cemented her commitment to social justice, which includes the somewhat legalistic remit of human rights law and equality in legal representation and extends well beyond. What is your personal philosophy, is my closing, and perhaps unfair question, not the easiest question, especially on a Monday afternoon on the phone. Cassandra does not hesitate. Human rights starts at home. It's about the small things in our personal lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, and then all the way through to the big national and international agendas, she says. It's about the fundamental values of fairness and equity expressed through our personal lives, the life of our society and our institutions. That is what we need. Dogs note that Cassandra Goldie went to a high school in Perth, Western Australia, and her career indicates a determination to serve the less fortunate in Australia and build a better and fairer Australia. Well, thank you so much. So there's the two ladies, and uh, they're both similar. They've certainly had extraordinary careers, and yet they are so, so very different. And most of, um, most of our listeners would have seen them on television. They appear quite often uh, on television, particularly Cassandra representing ACOS. But Prue Goward has been pretty prominent over the years too, and she was always regarded as, as Howard's um, protégé, wasn't she, very much in the Liberal Party fold, whereas I'm not sure that uh, Cassandra is any, in any political fold. But we'll have a little bit of a break and then we'll come back and we'll see how they both look at the disadvantaged in our community. Have you ever had a diagnosis of breast cancer or a gynaecological cancer? Would you like to support other women as they go through their own cancer experience? Counterpart is a community-based service located in Melbourne. They support women right across Victoria who have been diagnosed with breast or a gynaecological cancer. Counterpart peer support volunteers have all had their own cancer experience. They provide a listening ear and emotional and practical support to other women affected by cancer. As a peer support volunteer, you'll receive six weeks training one day a week. The 2021 volunteer intake will begin training in August. Applications close on June 7. To apply or find out more, visit counterpart.org.au forward slash volunteer or call our resource centre on 1300 781 500. Counterpart, women supporting women with cancer. A 3CR supporter. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program and we're discussing um, the two women's view of the disadvantaged in our society, Prue Goward and Cassandra Goldie. Uh, now, we're now going to give you what uh, Prue Goward actually wrote in the Financial Review of the 19th of October, um, and, but we would like you to understand that we don't necessarily agree with Prue Goward at all. It is just symbolic of where people who are educated in private schools 
and who see themselves on the on the on the shirt tails of the wealthy and the powerful in our society, really how they look at the disadvantaged in our community. It's it's symptomatic. It's symbolic of something that's very wrong. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. So I'll now read uh, Prue's article that she wrote for the Financial Review. It's entitled, Why You Shouldn't Underestimate the Underclass. They are damaged, lacking in trust and discipline and highly self-interested. But the poor are still a force that Australia needs to properly harness. If there is hope, it lies in the proles. So said one of the 20th century's greatest philosophers, thinly disguised as a novelist, George Orwell, in his sprookily prescient work, 1984. I believe my lifelong fascination with the underclass began when I pondered that the declaration of independence against a futuristic form of government oppression, which has turned out not to be so futuristic, As a shopkeeper's daughter, I understood poor people. They obeyed the law, worked hard, sent their kids to the same primary schools I attended and were equally ambitious for their children. But the underclass, small as it was then, behaved differently. Like the stoats and the weasels of the wild wood in the wind in the willows, yet another English children's book on the topic of class, They rejected the rules and lived by their own. They were to be feared and were, to use my mother's words, not very nice. It took Orwell to turn the noble Marxist proletariat into the proles. Since the 1950s, there has been a remarkable growth in the number of proles. The welfare state is not entirely to blame, as the world of Dickens attests. Government agencies view them with alarm as huge cost centres. They are overrepresented in their use of government crisis services and are always the last to give up smoking, get their shots and eat two servings of vegetables a day. Of course, they are always seen as a deficit. Social workers, traditionally good young men and women who thought it would be nice to be kind for a living, despair of their appalling housework, neglect of their children, and notably their sharp and unrepentant manner when told to lift their game by a patronising do-gooder. Oh yes, and they don't vote often. Although, as I found door-knocking, it will be issues such as refugees and threats to the national flag which will get them out the door rather than the budget deficit or how much we spend on public education. Orwell was right. The underclass can smell a fake at 50 paces, distrusts conceptual rhetoric, and cannot speak a word of newspeak. Despite the billions of dollars governments invest in changing the lives of proles, their numbers increase, their birth rates far outstrip those of professional couples, and they are now a significant potential contributor to our workforce. Except that children languish in the growing number of behavioural support classes in general high schools where they learn little and teachers itch to send them to the local TAFE to do some form of homeschooling and get them off their books. Runs graduated with basic studies completion certificate and little else. Their prospects are not great. 
The discipline of work and often its thanklessness, especially at the unskilled end, also have little appeal. The underclass know what they want and see no reason why they should take notice of some man or woman in a suit when they get in their way. They were a significant part of the anti-vax protests because they do not like being told what to do. And even though many drew their inspiration from spurious websites, they had correctly identified the freedoms the rest of us had only been too happy to give up. State leaders might have deplored the demonstrations, but they also knew they represented the tip of the sentiment the rest of society keeps hidden from view and only reveals in the privacy of the ballot box. Freedom has gathered pace. The underclass is not always a happy place to be, and bumping into the rest of the world mostly does not go well. People with chronic mental illness, cognitive disabilities, and childhoods of trauma are mixed together in a sometimes brutal way. Chaos and crisis never far from their door. Living in a wild wood in their streets and public housing blocks or caravan parks. And yet, I like them. I like them because they call us out. They are honestly self-interested, and you always know what they think. I know many of them. So many clever, actually very clever, kids and adults, although often damaged and almost entirely lacking discipline, trust in the system, trust in anyone who represents the system. I am convinced we can do better to harness the force that these people of the underclass represent. We need to make it a focus of social policy, not a byproduct of it. We have little choice, or we will continue to import our workforce and in growing numbers as risk management parenting forces the birth rate lower. So long as we keep looking at the billions of dollars they cost us, we will continue to dislike them, reject them, and write them off. Yet in an age where cultural hegemony is now as strong as it was 70 years ago, only different, never have we needed them more to challenge modern meekism. The child who cried, look at the king in the emperor's new clothes, was surely a member of the underclass. Ugh, odious. Uh, we'll have a bit of a break after that. It's pretty, it's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? Uh, I think it, it leaves um, some of us in a bit of a shock. But uh, we'll have a break. And then Jeff is going to tell us some of the, about some of the reactions to Prue Goward's um, article because there was a lot of reaction, the Twitter sphere, the, the Facebook pages and even the newspapers and opinion pieces just lit up in the last week. But a little bit of a break and back to Jeff. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03-9419-8377. Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03-9419-8377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. We've got Jeff with us because he's been doing all this research. He's a great researcher, our Jeff, and he's going to tell us about some of the reactions to Prue Goward. 
Yes, sir. Some of them are hilarious, Jean. And and honestly, I think the best uh, thing you can do with when you get brain farts from the right, like these, uh, like this one from Goward, is is just laugh at them. That they're, they're pathetic. They're, they really reveal so much about the ignorance of the isolation and insulation of private school um, educated people in some regards. They, they, they claim to be in touch with the, you know, they speak the language of the street because they've met somebody once who didn't go to private school. <laughs> and I, I, honestly, I, I, I'm gobsmacked. And, and, and I really don't think you could beat the shovel, actually, um, for their instant response on, on Twitter, which was um, the shovel, who is a satirical, of course, organisation, uh, the shovel said, when we submitted a piece to the financial review under the name of Prue Goward, we didn't actually expect them to publish it. Sorry. <laughs> so they, they actually they were basically claiming that this satire wasn't us. They couldn't believe, they couldn't have done it any better themselves if they'd written it themselves as satire. But, of course, uh, now, the, now the Fin Review, copying a huge amount of flack for this article, uh, had a response from Michael Stutchbury, editor-in-chief, um, who said, I haven't read what The Guardian has done on this. I don't know the details of what Dom Perrottet said in New South Wales Parliament, but I have read tens of emails complaining about Prue Goward's op-ed article, most of them seemingly encouraged by GetUp. Uh, I have spoken to this issue about with Goward and Cassandra Goldie, um, and uh, Will, she ran, he ran the reply from Goldie uh, in the spirit of open debate, he says, uh, going through. He says, I, can't, I can understand how some people object to the tone and struggle with Goward's linguistic framework of Marx and Orwell. <laughs> this is like another satire, struggling with Goward's linguistic framework of Marx and Orwell, who had a certain love-hate relationship with the proles and a general disregard for middle-class social justice types. I've no idea where this guy is coming from either. Mm. Marx and Orwell having a certain love-hate relationship with the proles is interesting. And... Um, Anyway, he goes on basically to say that people just misunderstood. They, yet here is the point of misinterpretation. Goward is not mocking the underclass. She mocks disparaging government and middle-class attitudes and the resulting relevant policies to the underclass. Huh. Perhaps even her mother's attitude to stoats and weasels in wind and willows class structure of the English Industrial Revolution. So he claims that she's poking fun at the 19th century way of looking at it and we should harness the... Uh, the underclass. I mean, this is the Fin Review trying to basically wallpaper over the cracks of the ludicrousness that was Prue Goward's article. Um, but really, nothing will top the absolute joy of uh, satire that came from Minge and Quarterly um, uh, by Mark Mordew, which was called Why You Shouldn't Underestimate the Upper Class. So it's it's a read it's a redo of Prue's argument, but with a different um, class under the focus. Uh, it's called "Why You Shouldn't Underestimate the Upper Class," and there's a quote: "They are damaged, lacking in reliability and restraint, and highly self-interested. But the ultra-rich are still a force that Australia needs to pop properly harness." By crud blower, columnist in the AFR, supposedly. Of course, this is satire, and it starts. You can't have your cake and let your neighbour eat it too. So said Anne Rand, one of the 20th century's greatest philosophers, thinly disguised as a novelist, in her spookily prescient work, Atlas Shrugged. 
I believe my own lifelong fascination with the upper classes began when I pondered the declaration of self-interest over any threat of government restraint, which has thankfully turned out to be not that much restraint at all. As a miner's son, I always understood that rich people were above the law, that they worked obsessively or hardly at all, sent their kids to very different primary schools to the one I attended, and were determined their children should inherit all their privileges and power, be it deserved or not. But the ultra-rich, as an even more elite class, small as it then was, behaved differently. Like Mr Toad of Toad Hall in The Wind in the Willows, yet another English children's book on the topic of class. The ultra-rich were mischievous and boastful and lived by their own rules. They were to be feared and were, to use my mother's words, not very nice. It took Anne Rand to exhort the pragmatically industrious and selfish rich into the totalitarian inclined and ruthlessly greedy ultra-rich. Since the 1980s, there has been remarkable growth in the wealth of the ultra-rich. The welfare state only held them back temporarily as the world of Dickens attests. Government agencies limply acknowledge the ultra-rich as rampant tax dodgers. They are certainly overrepresented in their rorting of corporate welfare and government subsidies and are always the last to give up quaffing wine, discover sobriety and dine modestly. <laughs> of course, they are always declared an asset. Social workers, traditionally good young men and women who thought it would be nice to be kind for a living, despair of their ostentatious homes spoiling of their children and notably their sharp and unrepentant manner when told to lift their game by the patronising do-gooder. Oh, yes, they don't need to vote that often due to their control of government by covert party donations, although, as I found door-knocking, it will be issues such as negative gearing and franking credits <laughs> rather than climate change or how much we spend on public education. Unless it affects how much is spent subsidising private education, that gets them voting. <laughs> Despite the billions of dollars that governments are milked in supporting the lives and interests of the ultra-rich, their hunger for even greater wealth increases by the day. Their birth rates are less even than those of professional couples, and they could be a significant potential contributor to our society, except their children languish in the growing number of narcissism treatment classes in private high schools where they learn little and teachers itch to offload them to corporate, local corporates and get them off their books. <laughs> Once graduated with a basic studies completion certificate and little else, their prospects are just brilliant. The discipline of work and often its thanklessness, especially at the less skilled end, have little appeal and there is no need for them to consider such challenges and everyday human struggle. Promotions all the way forward, doors open for them. Anne Rand was right. The ultra-rich can smell an opportunity at 50 paces, distrust social justice rhetoric and have little time for welfare philosophy. They know what they want and see no reason why they should take notice of some man or woman bent over a bicycle, delivering them their designer pizza. Just get out of the way when you're done delivering. Life, it's one big, big, devouring thrill. Of course, the upper class is not always a happy place to be, and bumping, bumping into the rest of the world mostly does not go well. People with the aforementioned chronic narcissism, bouts of bullying megalomania, and childhoods marked by detachment are mixed together in a sometimes brutal way, indulgence and cruelty never far from their fists. 
living in an array of toad hall mansions on exclusive streets or passing time indolently on their yachts. And yet, I like them. I like them because they show us how things really are. They are in uninhibitedly self-interested, and you always know that they don't give a damn about some mythical us. I know, I know many of them, so many clever, actually very clever kids and adults, although they are often damaged and almost entirely lacking self-restraint, respect for society, or trust in anyone who might represent a fairer system. I am convinced we can do better to harness the force that the people of the upper classes represent. We need to make it a focus of social policy, not a byproduct of it. We have little choice, or we will continue to import our ultra-rich and growing numbers via multinationals and other offshore indulgences when our own homegrown gorgons are well able to mine the landscape here. So long as we keep looking at the billions of dollars they take from us, we will continue to dislike them, reject them, and write them off. Yet, in an age when cultural hegemony is now as strong as it was over 70 years ago, only different, never have we needed them more to challenge any hint of social justice threatening our profit margins and property portfolios. The king who despised the child who cried, look at the king, in the emperor's new clothes, was surely a member of the upper class. <laughs> and that piece of joy gave this, it was by Crud Blower, columnist of the AFR, uh, appeared in Mark Mordew's column on October 21st uh, from the Minjin Quarterly, which we would encourage you to have a look at at any time. But isn't it fun to take the mickey out of this bloated, uh, you know, bureau, bourgeois, lump and bourgeoisie who claim to think that they know what the common man knows and feels and how they're untapped? What do you think, Jean? Well, I think I think what you're doing is, is dealing with uh, what I call the insecure lower middle class, the shopkeeper's daughter who, who wants to be the servant of the wealthy and the powerful. Um, I think uh, given, given when people have opportunities, uh, educational opportunities, you can go one way or the other. Uh, Howard, for example, went to a selective high school and so did Lionel Murphy. But Howard um, married into the upper north shore of Sydney and uh, became a servant of the wealthy, whereas Murphy, at a crucial point in his life, when his brother, who was a social worker, by the way, died of tuberculosis, decided that he would be a servant of the not-so-advantaged. So, so um, I think at a crucial point in people's lives, they actually make this decision who they are going to be a servant of. Uh, and um, uh, I think that the people who tend to go to private schools uh, are um, very fearful of the uh, underclass or whatever you want to call them, uh, the people, the fine line between um, the lower middle class and the people who have fallen off the social ladder. What they don't understand is that the people who have fallen off the social ladder can actually afford to be kind to each other because they're not insecure. Um, or people who don't care about the social ladder can actually just be human beings and be kind to each other. And it's so much better not to be part of this whole um, insecure class structure, which tends to keep coming up in our society. I find it very, very sad indeed. 
I find Brew Goward a very sad person. I, I once had the uh, once had the opportunity of teaching some of the people from the private schools uh, once at university um, at one of the elite colleges, and I was just struck. They were quite nice kids, but there was there was a level of I don't know unawareness yes. of of the world. That is very sad. Hmm. Yeah, and if they actually do want to think about the um, other people who are less who are less advantaged. Um, then they think in terms of charity, not rights. But then we have somebody like Cassandra Golden, and she didn't go to a private school. Uh, she went to a high school in Perth. And we're going to have a bit of a break and we're going to come back and hear what, uh, what Cassandra Golden's got to say about all of this. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. back again. We've had enough of Prue Goward, the shopkeeper's daughter and private school um, graduate. And um, now I come to think of that Mrs. Satchel was a shopkeeper's daughter too, wasn't she? But we're going to go across to Cassandra Goldie and Dale is going to tell her what, tell us what she had to say. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, uh, this article is less problematic in the language that it uses. Uh, and uh, Cassandra Goldie wrote, we need to fix poverty and stop blaming stereotyped poor. This is by Dr. Cassandra Goldie and it was published in the Fin Review. So poverty exists in Australia, but the people who live in poverty should not be blamed. Poverty is not caused by a lack of motivation and discipline poor budgeting, bad genes or bad parenting. Instead, poverty is caused by a lack of resources. In modern wealthy nations like Australia, this was supposed to be resolved decades ago by full employment, equitable access to free education and healthcare, social housing for people who can't afford to rent privately and social security for people out of paid work. With some shocking exceptions, particularly for First Nations people, up until the mid-1970s, we were making good progress. For many years, unemployment was well below the 4 to 5% the government is now targeting. Pensions were lifted to 25% of average earnings and unemployment payments were set at the same level. There was no judgment divide between those deemed deserving of income support they could frugally live on and those who were not. 
we built universal health care and improved it, though there are gaps as wide as those in the teeth of people who can't afford to visit the dentist. For a while, the educational divide narrowed as public schools were better resourced, and the first generation of young people from low-income families attended universities. We invested in wage subsidies and training to lift people out of long-term unemployment. Prime Minister Bob Hawke committed to end child poverty and quickly reduced it by a third as a result of direct policy action, delivering adequate family payments to low and modest income households. He was the last Prime Minister to make a serious attempt. As our ACOS and UNSW Sydney report earlier this week showed, over the last two decades, government policies have driven systemic poverty across the community. Whilst median household incomes have risen in real terms by 45%, the incomes of people unemployed rose by just 12%, almost all due to the paltry $25 per week increase earlier this year. And low-income single parents with older children fared even worse, rising by a meagre 7.9%. The failure to properly index unemployment payments means the gap between unemployment and pension payments rose from between $45 per week in 2000 to $165 per week today. There are 1.2 million people on JobSeeker and Youth Allowance, which are just $45 and $36 a day, respectively. Three quarters have had to rely on income support for more than a year, not because they don't want jobs, but because they face persistent discrimination, stigma and lack of resources. Poverty is not about lack of character. In 2006, the government cut incomes of single parents with children aged over seven and in 2009 stopped indexing family payments to wages, greatly reducing their value. Three years later, 80,000 more single parents were shifted from parenting payment to New Start and lost at least $75 a week. There were virtually no new social housing dwellings built over the past decade. So the share of social housing in our homes has fallen to 4.2%, its lowest level since World War II. Rents are sharp, rising sharply now, especially outside the major cities. We invest less than half of the OECD average in employment assistance for people who are unemployed and instead press people to apply for 20 jobs or face instant payment suspension. Again, the assumption is that people are feckless and undisciplined and if only they made more effort, they'd find a job. Currently, at least 3 million people in our communities are locked into poverty, hemmed in on one side by $45 a day unemployment payments and on the other by unaffordable rents and out-of-pocket health costs. With millions falling into poverty over the last 18 months, Many more have been confronted by declining mental health and are struggling to retain hope. As another recent ACOS and UNSW Sydney report showed, the pandemic has hit hardest communities that were already disadvantaged. People on low incomes have been dying at four times the rate of the rest of the community.
It is not surprising that the people with the least resources are often concentrated in the most disadvantaged neighbourhoods with the worst housing and access to services. There are symptoms. These are symptoms, not causes. Lack of opportunities, not choices. However, the pandemic has also shown us that poverty can be eradicated if we commit to doing so. The government almost abolished poverty for people seeking job, receiving job seeker last year when it temporarily doubled income support payments. We can do this again and restore full employment and reduce edu educational and health inequity if we set aside the tropes and stereotypes and commit to doing it. As the Dutch historian and an author, Rutger Bregman writes, poverty isn't a lack of character, it's a lack of cash. Dogs note the difference between the attitudes of the two women towards their fellow Australian citizens, especially those who happen to fall into poverty in the neoliberal jungle created by the financial and political elites of the last 50 years. We suggest that the Perth High School education of Cassandra Goldie has produced a much more rounded citizen than the Adelaide Woodlands Church of England Grammar School did for Prue Goward. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, um, that uh, I like that quote about uh, it's just lack of cash. I've always said that money only becomes a problem when you can't pay your bills and you haven't got enough of it. And I, 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 my experience of people who have often fallen into poverty is that they are far, far, far better at budgeting than ever I will be. I really hold up my hat to large numbers of sole parents in this country who rear their children, send them to public schools, and some of them end up at university. And, um, yes, uh, I, um, I, uh, I can only just wonder at them. And I must admit that um, when I, I, I did mix with them day by day, uh, I was constantly, every day, I wondered at the courage of my fellow human beings with what some people could go through and survive. But um, I think Cassandra Galdi, being a community lawyer, also understands that. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that we have been able to listen to her. So let's have a bit of a break now and come back with Mr Fudge Touch. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Underclass wasn't the only issue that put up the social media this last week. Mr. Tudge Fudge managed to um, get a big reaction too when he started talking about curriculum and how we had to um, educate our young men, particularly to be nationalistic. 
I shouted, I must admit, because I thought of uh, all of the young men that they sent to the First World War to fight for king and country and all the men who didn't come back. And it, it had overtones of that uh, following the Anzac legend, and I thought of my grandchildren. So um, I must admit that I reacted um, to Mr Tudge Fudge, but I believe that uh, he is trying to distract from the lack of funding for public education. Uh, and the AEU have had quite some interesting media releases. We won't have time to deal with them this week, but we'll come back to them next week. But I'm going to pass you over to Sorrel, who's going to tell you about playing politics with Australian children. Historians take touch to task on the curriculum. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Jean. So historians have criticised the Federal Education Minister, Alan Tudge, for playing politics with Australian children, warning that his push to make the national curriculum more positive about the nation would not give students a full account of the past. Mr Tudge maintained he wanted school children to be taught an accurate account of Australian history, as he redoubled his criticism of the draft of the national curriculum on Friday, saying it presented a negative, miserable view of Australia. Professor Melanie Oppenheimer, president of the Australian Historical Association, the peak national body for historians, said there was a very strong belief amongst historians that Mr Tudge's comments were not helping the debate. He is playing politics with Australian children. It is unhelpful what he is doing, Professor Oppenheimer, the chair of history at Flinders University, said. History is meant to be an accurate reflection of the past and not everything that happens in the past is rosy and happy. He's asking us to present something that's just not true. We want children to leave school being able to understand their past and understand where they've come from in all of its complexity. Mr. Tudge said, although he had not seen the latest version of the draft curriculum, he had been briefed on some revisions and his assessment overall was that it had gone from an F to a C, but Australian students deserve an A+. He welcomed some changes, including more emphasis on phonics in the English curriculum, the reintroduction of teaching timetables in year three mathematics rather than year four, and the inclusion of references to Australia's Christian heritage. But he repeated his push for the history curriculum to be overhauled. It doesn't present the positive, optimistic view of modern Australian and nor does it provide the underpinnings of the origins of a modern liberal democracy. I just think that it's so important for kids to understand, Mr. Tudge said on Friday. I put it to you that today our society is the wealthiest, most liberal, most egalitarian and most tolerant society that has ever existed in all of humankind anywhere in the world. <laughs> Interesting take, uh, Mr. Tudge. <laughs> Geoffrey Blaney, described by Mr. Tudge as Australia's greatest living historian, has also expressed criticisms of the draft curriculum, telling the Australian the condemnation of this country has gone too far and that Australia, on the whole, is a success. One of Mr. Tudge's key complaints is that the curriculum proposes to teach Anzac Day as a contested idea, arguing instead it should be taught as the most sacred day in the Australian calendar. Military historian Peter Stanley, a professor at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, said it was possible for students to form a positive view of Australia while teaching negative perspectives and accounts of key historical events. 
Mr Tudge says Anzac Day is not a contested idea, but many people disagree, which means that it is a contested idea, Professor Stanley said. Education means allowing people to make up their own minds. It doesn't involve telling people what the answers are. Isn't it ironic that he's lauding a liberal democracy, but he wants to push a totalitarian view of history that exists in countries like North Korea, where there is only one story of North Korea's history and it's just told by the regime? Neil James, executive director of the Australian Defence Association, said all historical debate was contestable and perspective on Anzac Day may shift over time, but facts should prevail. It's the quality of the contestable debate that counts. Ideologues on both sides of the political spectrum will only talk about the thing that suits their ideology. They won't talk about all the facts involved, said Mr James. The Independent Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority is in the process of finalising the draft document after a 10-week consultation period. Mr Tudge and the State and Territory Education Ministers are required to sign off on it before it can be implemented. And now for a good news story to finish us off, we go to the Great State School. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State schools. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school of the week is the Kahuna Secondary College. Uh, which is committed to the safety and well-being of all children. Now, this is the information from my school website. This small secondary school in the country services a few families with a generous income, but is certainly much more representative of the less wealthy. The school has approximately 191 students, 98 boys and 93 girls. Everyone really does know everyone else. Its ICSIA value is 978. It's well below the average of 1,000 and only 8% of its families have an income in the upper quartile or 25% of the Australian community. 18% from the second quartile, 35% from the third, and 39% are from disadvantaged families. There are 5% from non-English speaking backgrounds attending the school and 5% of Indigenous background. The Australian government only provides 0.8 of a million, which is 800,000, and the state 3.17 million. The parents paid $118,338 in fees and raised $143,089 in 2020. All in all, it costs $20,199 to educate a child at the secondary school. There is some extraordinary teaching going on at the school and the students are very motivated to do well. Their NAPLAN results are just well above average uh, of most areas. Of the 33 that completed their school in 2020, 65% have gone to university, 18% to TAFE and 12% are employed straight out of the, into the community. It's no wonder that the real estate values in Kahuna have skyrocketed as those with escaping the city search for a top-notch friendly state's secondary school. And the country schools in general do a fabulous job. Uh, we commend all of them to you. But Kahuna this week, you are stars. Thank you very much for doing such a great job for all those kids. 191 very happy kids at a really good public school. And the dogs, thank you all for your fantastic efforts. 
It's amazing how, you know, it really puts paid to Prugauer's suggestion that the so-called underclasses, that language is incredibly problematic, but, you know, those disadvantaged classes are, are lazy, whereas you've got such a large percentage of students from this extremely disadvantaged school going to going on to university. That's, an, that's a really high proportion of students going on to university. That's because kids want to do well. They, they, they see that the world out there is, is, has got stuff that they don't have and they really, they got, they're hungry. These public school kids, they're great. Yeah, as we learned the other day, the kids from disadvantaged backgrounds actually do better at university. That's so right. Prude yep. doesn't know oh, what yes. she's talking about. She certainly oh, doesn't. Yes. Oh, yes. Motivation is what? Just, just to give a, an example of that, a mate of mine, he came from Heidelberg. He came up from a rough family. His father used to beat him up. He was a drunk. He got into La Trobe Uni uh, you know, as an adult entrance and he took it to it like a tiger. And he's now lecturing his, with his PhD at Sydney University. He, would, he was the best in everything because he, he, knew, what, he knew what it meant not to be, mm. not, not, not to be the best. Shout out to all the people from tough backgrounds who've made it. It's a tough gig because as the neoliberals have systemically put in place apparatus to create these cycles of poverty, uh, disadvantaged people still manage to thrive and strive. So big props to Kahuna. So congratulations. You're our great state school of the week. Absolutely. Yes. Well, it means that the cause is worth fighting for, isn't it? So we'll be back next week. And we have to sign off for now, so we hope that you'll look at our website at www.adolf.info and we have to say that our time has gone, so it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill
Joe, you're ten years dead.